In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. So if you're someone who doesn't think much about where the products that you buy come from, it's about to get harder to ignore. There is a new law coming into effect on Tuesday in the U.S. It's being celebrated by activists representing the Uyghur community. But it's making a lot of U.S.-based businesses really nervous. The new regulations are expected to create even more chaos in global supply chains. A former customs official quoted in Bloomberg said that maximum enforcement would be like a nuclear bomb for the economy. The U.S. government accuses China of using Uyghurs and other minorities to do forced labor. And the law bans everything coming into the U.S. from the Xinjiang region, unless companies can prove that their products weren't made by forced labor. But a lot of companies are saying that they don't have enough guidance yet, and that figuring out whether their supply chains are tainted by forced labor from Xinjiang can be really difficult. And the Chinese government says the main goal of this law is really to hurt China's economy. For my two guests this week, this is an issue that hits close to home. Rehan Asat is a Uyghur human rights lawyer based in the U.S. And I'm going to talk to her about the impact this law could have worldwide and some of the backlash against it. Then I'm going to talk to Johar Ilham, a Uyghur activist who's been working on the issue of forced labor about what it actually looks like. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Rehan, hello. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. So Rehan, to start off, can you tell us exactly what the law is that's coming into effect on June 21st? What is it designed to do? So the law is called Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and it is aimed at fundamentally changing the ecosystem of business supporting forced labor coming from the Xinjiang Uyghur region, where um, there is credible allegations of uh, forced labor. This law is a past-breaking legislation. It has something called the rebuttable presumption, which means it really, for the first time, imposes a high and strict standard on importers. To gain entry for the goods into the United States, an importer is required to rebut this presumption by producing a clear and convincing evidence that the goods sourced mined, produced, manufactured wholly or partially from the region is not tainted with forced labor. Just to like make this a little bit clearer for people who may not understand the legalese, essentially it penalizes importers by seizing 
goods that are thought to be from that region. And the presumption is that anything that's coming from that region is produced by forced labor. And it's now going to be on these importers to prove that these goods haven't been produced by forced labor in order for them to be allowed through, right? Am, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, yes, indeed. So the Chinese government denies all allegations of forced labor. In a press conference recently, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said it was a preposterous lie concocted by external forces. The government says it's trying to boost living standards for Uyghurs in part by finding them jobs, that they're paid the local minimum wage. But evidence of forced labor in Xinjiang has been piling up for years. Journalists and researchers have found links to alleged forced labor of Uyghurs and other minorities in all kinds of products, from surgical masks to laptops to cotton to solar panels to wigs. Hundreds of thousands of people from ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur community, are being forced by the Chinese authorities to pick cotton in the far western region of Xinjiang. That's according to information seen by the BBC. I know it was already illegal to knowingly import goods that have been made by forced labor since 1930, right? So what exactly is being changed through this new law? What has changed um, is that before it would be the enforcement agencies which investigate and prosecute forced labor allegations. But now the burden is shifted on the companies to disprove that there is no forced labor in their supply (laughs) chain. And not only that, it's not just one entity. It really um, is about the entire supply chain. And one of the complaints um, is often is like, how far do we go down our supply chain? So not only the business entity that manufactures, but their suppliers, direct suppliers or indirect suppliers are all implicated under this law. And I want to talk about some of those complaints later on. But before we even do that, can you just explain how big of an issue the use of forced labor is? How much of the products we use are thought to be tainted by forced labor happening in this province? Yeah, um, like, for example, like, you know, not only just uh, like uh, solar panels, tomatoes, textiles, aluminum, minerals, and, and much more. This is not it, some sort of a localized problem that is peculiar to the Xinjiang Uyghur region. Uyghur forced labor from the region directly engages with the global economy. That's why this is a global problem problem. While the forced labor in Xinjiang principally is known for its connection to textile, food, uh, mineral and solar industries, Xinjiang is a very vibrant region that there are, um, you know, coal mining as well as biotech. All these industries were thriving before the human rights atrocities took place. Xinjiang is a major producer of sneakers, electronics, and clothing. By some estimates, one-fifth of the world's cotton comes from Xinjiang, and 45% of the world's polysilicon, which is used to make solar panels. And once this law um, enters into effect on June 21st, we're going to definitely see many companies would fall under the purview of this law. Because so far, we've been just saying, like, well, you know, if you're not working with uh a specific company in the Uyghur region, you're fine. But what if these companies are working with 
a company in Beijing or Shanghai and you as a Western company working with them, you're indirectly already implicated. It's not just about the specific product, but any raw material produced in part in Xinjiang. It's not just in whole, even partially, mm-hmm. you end up under the purview of this law. How many people are believed to be doing forced labor in Xinjiang? It's very hard to put into the numbers because um, just given it could be a lot more, um, but at least we know at this point that um, you know at least a million people are detained in the camps. There's been a lot of pushback against this law from industry groups, corporate lobbyists. Um, can you tell me what the main criticisms of this legislation have been? The the main criticism of the legislation is just a very flawed one, which is, you know, it would be very difficult to conduct a thorough due diligence in relation to their supply chain. But it's because China's economy is so big, it would implicate the company's bottom line. So that's why we're seeing this backlash against a very good law that designed to mitigate human suffering. I don't believe that companies are just maligned and they're trying to aid or abet forced labor. I think this is a result of globalization in many ways. But at the same time, I think it's time for governments to really step in to make sure that they comply with forced labor. If I can just lay out some of the criticisms that people have leveled against this, you know, critics say that it's being implemented too quickly that the government hasn't provided enough guidance in advance of June 21st for companies to immediately be able to comply. You know, companies are saying that it's incredibly hard to track these relationships, which are often super complicated. For example, to make a T-shirt, I've read that there are over 100 steps involved Um and companies are saying that they're going to have a really hard time doing this. It will be expensive for them to carry the cost of tracking. What do you make of all of those criticisms? First of all, I think that's just like fundamentally and morally, ethically and legally wrong. Because first of all, um, the the entire human rights movement put companies unnoticed for years. This is not an issue that just like, you know, popped up yesterday in the public discourse. Even the State Department, like different government issued guidelines asking companies not to be complicit in Uyghur forced labor. It's been like several years in the making and many companies, including even Chinese companies, had a saying in this. And I think that already created a very transparent environment. I find this argument um, truly, uh, I think, uh, in some ways it's appalling as well and disheartening to hear. Can you tell me more about the pressure companies face from the Chinese government? Why is it so hard to do the due diligence? It is impossible to conduct independent and transparent and impartial audit against forced labor. It's impossible to pull a a worker and ask, are you working against your will? It's impossible to have those conversations without the government overseeing the entire process and surveilling the population. 
China passed anti-foreign sanctions law, which provides for punishment of individuals and organizations accused of implementing or assisting in the implementations of sanctions、mm-hmm. in relation to the forced labor allegations. So basically, what happens that companies and auditors are severely limited in their ability to gather information necessary to ensure the absence of Uyghur forced labor in their supply chains. And that created a chilling environment for companies to comply、um, with any sort of guidelines on best business practices or creating a free slave labor environment. You know, you're kind of you're in between choosing whether comply with the U.S. law or China's law. Companies have propensity to water down their due diligence program in response to pressure. From China, we've seen that、uh, in the aftermath of backlash against H and M. What happened with H and M? So I guess H and M released some kind of guidance, and then they they had to f- close down a bunch of stores. That's all I really know about it. H and M was one of the companies that actually came out to say, citing the forced labor credible evidence that they're going to see sourcing from the region. Except six months later. The Chinese government's Youth Communist League orchestrated a campaign attacking H and M. Domestic demand for cotton in China is enough now, right? So I don't think it's necessary to care about these remarks at all, including Nike, Adidas, these foreign-funded textile enterprises. They're actually trying to suppress China's economy. They're trying to contain China's rise. And really galvanized the entire internet users, social media users, to attack H and M,、uh, saying that you know I am a patriotic citizen of the Chinese government, and how dare H and M to say that they're not going to use、uh, Xinjiang produce cotton. Hi H and M, don't waste your time to focus on the Chinese human rights problem. I am Chinese. I live in China. I can tell you, it's not even true. It's fake. You should focus on the real problem. Your T-shirt quality problem, ma. I can. Your T-shirt is so sexy. I can even see my face through the T-shirt. Do you know that?、Mm. Um, and as a result of that, the Chinese government cited the pub citizenry's outcry as a justification, and really、uh, sort of made. H and M inaccessible. It totally froze from the internet. If you get、wow. on like Uber and try to go to H and M store, H and M didn't even exist in China. And、wow. it really showed the power of the Chinese government. So that had a chilling effect on the entire business environment. You know, I've also read some comments from frontline regulators at Customs and Border Patrol, and they've been warning about supply chain disruptions because they're going to be examining an additional 11.5 million shipments a year.、Uh, that's that's the estimate. When they talk about the scale of this, what do you think about their ability to actually implement this law and and, and enforce it? Do you think they can do it? Well, I think whether we like it or not, the COVID global pandemic already disrupted the global supply chain.、Uh, 
but we we handled it. We we learned how to live with this. And I think ultimately we cannot have a finite vision when it comes to such a serious humanized atrocities. We cannot think about it's going to disrupt in the next months or two months. We should have an infinite vision for our global economy. We need to diversify our global supply chain. We cannot be dependent on a single country. December 2017, Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi. Available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. So a lot of Uyghurs outside of China still have family in Xinjiang. And government surveillance makes it difficult for them to get in touch and find out where their relatives are, whether they're in internment camps, prison, or doing forced labor, making products that we use in our day-to-day lives. And this is something Johar Ilham, a Uyghur activist who's been working with the coalition to end forced labor in the Uyghur region, thinks about all the time. In 2014, my father, Ilham Tokhti, was arrested and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was an uh, economics professor and he was accused of being a separatist, being an extremist and being someone who advocates for a violence, which like those labels are what the Chinese government uses uh, often uh, to all Uyghurs for the past decades. Johar's talked to former detainees about the conditions that they've worked in. She's been pushing for this legislation. And for her, it's a deeply personal fight. Since 2014, I have become an advocate for the release of my father. And starting from uh, 2018, I started advocating for the release of all the innocent Uyghurs who have been locked up in eradication camps and, and those who have been forced to work in conditions that strongly indicate forced labor. Johar says the last time she spoke to her father was in 2014, and the last time she heard word of him was in 2017. He's now serving life sentence in a prison, but there's a chance he could be transferred to a camp, to a factory to work, um, or he could be dead by now. But there's no way for me to find out at the moment. I've been trying constantly to find out news about him for the past five years, but I haven't had no luck so far. I'm really sorry about that. That's must be incredibly difficult to, to have to do this kind of work and think about it all the time. That's also what is keeping me going. I will have to keep working on this issue. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It is the same thing for probably all the Uyghur human rights advocates in the diaspora. We all have at least one loved ones, up to 10 or even dozens of um, loved ones who are locked up. In the course of your work, have you talked to people who've had to do forced labor? What have they told you? What kind of conditions have they had to work in? Yes, we have had spoken with survivors who have experienced working in forced labor. Also spoken with family members of current detainees and current forced labor workers. 
from those testimonies that we have gathered, most of those workers have worked over 12 hours a day. And um, with only one meal, it's not a nutritious food and it could be rotten and food that had gone bad. Most of those people are not allowed to be visited by family members and uh, they cannot go home. And a lot of those people have kids, have families, but they cannot be reunited because they're locked up in those facilities. Giant new factories and textile mills, hundreds of them, where they face strict controls and political indoctrination. The first thing our workers have to learn is to love the Communist Party, this factory boss says. There are different forms of forced labor practices in the Uyghur region. I mentioned about people who are not be allowed to be visited and they're locked up in a factory, but they're also ones who are allowed to go home which the Chinese government set them as so-called example to show Western media. And there are also kinds where Uyghur workers have been transferred outside of the Uyghur region to, as a labor transfer programs to work in factories that are in mainland China, like cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. They work for um, multi-million uh, corporations. And there are people who work in forced labor factories, but... There are also people who work in forced labor conditions that is right next to a camp uh, where they build a, a facility where they can produce things just to help maintaining those camps. This is one site we're trying to get to, a giant re-education camp. But more recently, something else has been built next door, a textile factory. Days after its completion, a large group of people can be seen being moved between the camp and the factory. Wow, and this is a factory here, it's extraordinary. And From it, the it's ground, scaling. it's clear the factory and accommodation blocks are all now one single site, plastered with Communist Party slogans. Majority of those people are suffering from all sorts of human rights abuses. But the Chinese government, the way that they've explained a lot of this is that it's part of a poverty alleviation program and that in the camps, they're teaching people skills so that they can get jobs. Exactly. And that is also one type of very racist and um, ideology that the Chinese government has been spreading to the entire Chinese community to make people think, oh, the Uyghur people are backwards. That's why we're saving them by providing them those so-called opportunities to learn those job skills and providing them with the jobs they need to be working for 12 hours. What would you say to the companies that have been complaining that the new rules are untenable and that they can't make it work? We do know it's trackable. If they're claiming that it's because they don't want, they don't want to. Because they don't want these abuses to come to light. And they, don't, they want to be saving money. But to be honest, those multi-million corporations are more than financially capable of tracking their supply chain. There are tools out there that are available for them to use. And there are already corporations that have been using those tools to track their supply chains, to be sustainable, to be, to be ethical. And if they, they claim that they don't know how to do it and they can't do it, then it's just excuses. Well, the other side of this is consumers. Obviously, supply chains are already messed up. Customs and Border Patrol is saying that this is going to cause even more chaos. What will this mean for consumers, do you think? I have faith in humanity. I feel like anyone on this earth, um, consumers, 
not talking about big corporations.、Uh, corporations only care about money a lot of times, but consumers, people just like you and me, I think majority of us we have conscience, and if we know what what we're waiting for, if we're waiting for a longer time to save somebody's lives, to have somebody can finally meet their. Child again, meet their grandchildren again, to finally can see their wives again, or finally go back home to attend their own wedding, or to 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 attend their own parents' funeral. I'm pretty sure people will be willing to wait for an order or shoes or whatever they place an order from. I'm pretty sure they will be waiting, willing to make. I do have that faith in humanity. I also wanted to ask you about the Chinese government's response to all of this. They're obviously really unhappy about this legislation. They say it's part of a campaign to halt China's economic rise. The government has also called out the U.S. for the use of prison labor in various states. What do you make of China's response to to this legislation? I mean, every country has their own flaws. There's no one perfect country. But can we talk about them? Yes. If we go and protest in front of the White House. What will happen to that person? Nothing. I'm not defending the U.S. or any other countries. We all have the right, and we have the obligation to comment, put an action towards a change on this matter. And the Chinese government, of course, is going to be defending their own actions because they don't want to look bad. They never admitted any of the persecution they have been doing in the beginning. They never, they didn't even admit that the existence of the camp until the、uh, release of all the satellite imageries and all these massive amount of evidence. They no longer deny the fact, and now they're gonna deny that their intention. Of course, they're gonna deny it, and and. But are, is that gonna stop Uyghur human rights advocates? Is that going to stop people from doing the right thing? No. Do you think that this law goes far enough to put pressure on the Chinese government to end these policies? I don't know how if if it's going to end it. To be honest, because we cannot only expect U.S. to save the world, and、uh, we cannot rely on only U.S. market.、Um, you know, now we have a risk. We have a huge risk that. Because of the implementation of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the U.S., and because of lack of similar、uh, laws or policies in elsewhere, that makes EU market, that makes、uh, Canadian market, that makes Japanese market, that makes Australian markets a possible dumping ground for forced labor tainted goods, and that is why we need. The same thing: a coordinated effort, a unified effort, and a single standard. On global market. Earlier this month, Canada's Parliament also voted for a bill that would require Canadian companies to make sure that they're not using forced labor or exploiting child workers overseas, similar to the Forced Labor Prevention Act in the U.S. The U.K. has also introduced measures to combat forced labor that include fines for companies and a review of export controls. But the government's been criticized for dragging its feet and for not going far enough to completely prohibit goods produced wholly or in part by forced labor.
So before I let you go, there is an update on a story we've covered on the show before. The first flight that was supposed to take asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda was canceled just minutes before takeoff after legal rulings on Tuesday evening. If you want to learn more about the UK's plan to offload asylum seekers to Rwanda, you should definitely check out our episode from May 6th. You can find it in our feed. And that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. This week, we had production help from Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald, and our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer, and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.